0: Sarah Waters' 2009 novel, The Little Stranger, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize and has received much praise and critical acclaim since its release. Set in 1940s England, it is a chilling ghost story about the Ayres family. She's also the multi-award winning author of The Night Watch and the Victorian trilogy of Tipping the Velvet, Affinity and Fingersmith. Since 2003, she has been awarded the Betty Trask Award, the Somerset Maugham Awards and the CWA Ellis Peters Dagger Award for historical crime fiction for Fingersmith. She has also been shortlisted twice for both the Orange Prize and the Man Booker Prize. Sarah has a PhD in English Literature and is also an Associate Lecturer with The Open University. Thanks for joining us today, Sarah. Oh, pleasure. Thank you. Now, you've been a very successful writer for a number of years. Have you always planned to be a writer? Was that something that you always wanted to do from when you were a young child?
1: Um, no, not really actually. I know lots of writers uh, do, do have that in their past. I mean, I did I did write a lot as a child. I loved it. You know, you, you're kind of encouraged to write at that age at school, to write stories and poems. Um, and I did that and, and wrote, you know, outside of school. But then as a teenager, I think I, you know, I, I was always quite academically minded as well. So I, I then just got into sort of writing about other people's writing, I suppose. I went to university um, and did English literature there. But then, after a couple of years out of university, I went back to do a PhD um, on historical fiction, and it was as I was finishing off that that I began to think, "Oh, you know, I might like to have a go at writing a historical novel of my own." And mm. it was really, you know, kind of making a decision to, to, to try and go for it. And uh, when I finished the thesis, I um, I took a year and I wrote the novel that then that became Tipping the Velvet.
0: Mm. And what? How did that happen? Did you did you get an idea and you thought, "Oh, this"? Could be a great um, idea for a book, or did you decide? You know, I really want to. I really want to write a historical novel, so I'm going to just sit down and get one out. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it was a bit of both, really. You know, I'd finished my academic work looking at uh, modern lesbian and gay historical novels, but I'd started it looking at the, at the Victorians and um, sort of what was happening in the sexual underworlds of, of late Victorian London. Mm. So I, um, yeah, I thought, you know, I'd like to write um, a lesbian historical novel, and I could. I was looking at the 1890s and seeing all this fascinating stuff there, and um, and really began to plot as I was finishing off my, my PhD and as soon as I had the opportunity then I, um, I kind of thought well you know let's give it a go mm. so it was a real leap of faith mm. it really was and the whole the whole writing process was a learning curve you know it was can I write a scene okay I've written a scene can I write a chapter okay now I've written a chapter you know can I can I you know, add another one, mm. and it was really like, um, yeah, it was. I kind of learned how to write as I was doing it, really. I suppose.
0: And when you say you learned how to write as you were doing it, where mm. did you get that learning from? Did you actually go and do some courses or study while you were while you were writing, or, or what happened there?
1: Yeah. No. I mean, gosh, I'm still learning how to write. <laughs> yeah, actually, so but I suppose what I mean is. Uh, no, I didn't do any writing courses at all. I'm, you know, I've always been a big reader and mm. I, I think a lot of it came, had to come intuitively. But what I did begin to learn was, you know, how to structure a chapter, um, how to pace a story, um, you know, when to linger on a scene, when to pull away from it and move on to the next one. You know, so those very sort of I think so much of writing is very, very technical, you know. Mm. It really is a craft. It's craft more than an art in some ways. Mm. And I suppose with that, um Plunging into a novel like that, um, you know, I just had to to figure those things out as I went along, really. Mm.
0: And you say that you plotted it all out. So did you actually plot out the whole thing and then sat down and kind of filled in the gaps? Because I know that some writers have no idea about plot and they just sit down and see what comes out.
1: Yeah, I know. Writers are very different on this issue, aren't they? Mm. And uh, no, the idea of sitting down—I uh, mean, you know—I know writers who start with one sentence and they take it from there, mm. and that absolutely terrifies me. a <laughs> prospect, you know, I'm much—I'm maybe a bit of a control freak, but I—I I like to have pretty much the whole novel. Plotted out you know in sort of greater or lesser detail, sometimes with some novels, I mean my third novel fingersmith has an incredibly complicated plot, and I really mm. had to have the you know the ins and outs of that mm. in advance mm. um the novel like the night watch the next one that was that was a bit more character led and mm. that was a bit more trial and error for me. I had to feel my way through that novel, mm. and I found it quite unsettling as a result i um work you know i I'm, I'm a I'm happiest when I've got the kind of skeleton Mm worked out. Which, you know, and and then for me, there's this, the next excitement is um, is discovering my characters, I think, because I know what my characters have to do. I really do at the start. But what I don't know is how they'll feel about that and how they'll feel about each other and what they really like, you know, what their motivations are for doing the things that the plot needs them to do. Mm. And that, um, I love that, I love that aspect of writing.
0: Now, it sounds like you're fairly structured when you plot out the story. With your characters, do you have a similar approach? Do you have, you know, a very, cl- a very clear idea of, you know, who they are and what their background is and what has impacted their lives. Do you think all that through beforehand?
1: Mm-hmm. I think I, I have that in broadly, you know, in advance. But that that can change. The plot r- rarely changes with me as I'm writing, but my characters can emerge for me um, quite a lot. So with my newest book, The Little Stranger, you know, I knew I was I, I knew I was going to have this. Male narrator, middle-aged country doctor narrator, right from the start. But Mm. but initially he was going to be a sort of solidly middle-class figure, rather a transparent narrator Mm. who was just going to recount the events of the of the book. Um, But quite early on, I decided it would be more interesting if I made him gave him a different class background. So he 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 became a working-class boy who's sort of done well, but as a consequence feels cut off from his working-class roots, and there's a bit more, you know, his, his his social status is a bit more ambiguous. Um, So he became a man with a bit of a chip on his shoulder. You know what I mean? Mm. So just by making sort of basic decisions like that, a lot followed. And then he ultimately became, because he became more interesting, his Mm. relationship to the story he was telling became more complicated. And he ended up being much less reliable than I thought he was going to be at the start. So you see, I mean, that actually transformed... The, the, the feel of the book, the mood of the book, but mm. even though the plot, the plot itself hadn't changed, you know what I mean, from my first vision. Mm. Now this, so I think plot is, sorry, I, no, no, I mean on. a plot is, it sounds like everything plot but in fact, mm. it's it's sometimes only the start.
0: Mm, mm. Mm. So The Little Stranger, which is, was shortlisted for the Booker Prize, uh, set in 1940s England, where where did that idea come from? Tell us a little bit about the Seed of you know your most recent book.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, it came from lots of different places, really. I mainly it came because I the, my, the book before it, The Night Watch, was set in the nineteen forties, mm. um, during and just after the Second World War, and I'd finished that book still really interested in the forties um, and particularly interested in the issue of class and what the war had the impact the war had had on on class in Britain and how it had shaken things up. Mm. Um. But also, I mean, you know, one big resource for me is other other novels actually and you know they've always been a great research resource for me so while i was writing the little stranger and the night watch i read a lot of 40s fiction Mm -hmm. and you know was tried to kind of get get a grip of that that particular idiom you know of that of that fiction and one book that made a big impression on me was a book called the franchise affair by josephine tay which is a crime novel Mm -hmm. from 1948 Mm -hmm really fascinating she was a great storyteller josephine tay mm. but she was very conservative too and it's a, this very conservative depiction of a working class girl and how she wrecks really the sort of middle class uh middle class life lives of two women mm. and um i thought wow you know what an interesting story and how it how well it encapsulates some of the issues at the time but i and i i kind of wanted to retell it you know in, in a way that was fairer to its working class protagonist Mm. and that's what I yeah but then then um, I decided to that maybe a novel of the supernatural would be an interesting way to explore the class Mm. tensions of the time so that that first the first vision I had of you know of taking on kind of Tay's uh, story and doing something with it quite quickly morphed into something else. So I ended up with using the same kind of cultural landscape as Tay's mm. novel uses, um, but finding, uh, you know, different different ways to address the issues of the time.
0: So your first three books, Tipping the Velvet, Affinity and Fingersmith, were um, a Victorian trilogy, and then The Night Watch mm-hmm. and The Little Stranger was set in the 40s. Is there a pattern here? Does that mean the next book is in the 40s? <laughs> <laughs> I I thought myself it would be quite nice if that were
1: the case, you know, the sort of, sort of neatness. Yes. I mean, the first three novels aren't a trilogy in any sense, but they, well, they, yes. they, for me there was a kind of logical progression, you know, from mm-hmm. one to the other, and there's a sort of completeness mm. to those three. Um, and it would have been nice if I could replicate that with the forties, but actually, I felt I I did consider it, but I I felt that I'd slightly exhausted something in myself, right. you know, it, my own relationship with the forties. I didn't know what I could bring. That was new to the decade mm-hmm. um, if, if I stayed there. So, in fact, I think I'm going to move slightly backwards uh, into the interwar years. I'm looking at the 20s oh. and the 30s at the moment. Okay. Yeah, which is fascinating. I mean, I've always, I've often done this backwards thing, you know, with the Victorian novels. I started in the 1890s, then I moved backwards into the 70s and the 60s. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's always seems quite kind of natural to me to, you know, to look at, at one period, but then actually to think about, OK, well, where did that come from? Mm. You know, what was producing that? So now it's really fascinating going back to the 20s and seeing things being put in place that would then become big issues, you know, in the war and the post-war period.
0: Mm. Now, writing historical fiction obviously involves a lot of research. Uh, mm. Do you typically do all the uh, the great bulk of the research first that you think that you need to and then sit down and write? Or do you write and kind of research as you go along? How, how, what's your process there?
1: Yeah. Again, it's a bit of both. It really is. I... Um, Usually, you know, I usually go to a period with the broadest sense of the sort of story I might tell um, and the sort of characters I might want to write about well, and that kind of guides my research to a certain extent um but i at that point, I do need to do you know quite broad research too so i'll I usually spend the first Three or, or more months, just doing, just reading about a period, beginning to read the novels from that period to get mm-hmm. a feel for the language and the, you know the, the vocabulary of the time. Um, but then, as I'm doing that, um, somehow, and it just sometimes does feel like a bit of a mystery how this happens. But mm-hmm. somehow, my own, you know, my own plot and my own characters. They kind of emerge for me out, out, out of the, the mists of the research like that. And then I get to a point where I really want to stop, I want to close the books and get on with my own novel, you know. And, mm. and I suppose it's what it is, I think, if you get to a point where. Of course, you don't know everything about a period, but you know enough to be able to make start making educated guesses about the bits you don't know. You know mm. that's a crucial point where you, you suddenly get a kind of confidence in talking about the period. Um, but then, um, I you know I carry on researching the whole time. I mean, for me. You know, if I I often get, I've had enough of writing at, say, four o'clock in the afternoon. Well, I can turn the computer off, but I can carry on working, you know, by reading. Mm. Um, or, or in the case of my last books, you know, watching a 40th film or something. And mm. this is all, research, you know, important research for me. So for me, researching and writing are very complementary activities. Mm. And I'll just... I keep on researching for the whole life of a book, um, you know, right till the very end.
0: Mm. Now, you've been quite prolific, really, as a writer. How, I mean, you must obviously have a quite disciplined approach to your writing and research. Do you have some kind of daily routine when you're writing or any kind of writing rituals that you have to start the day with or (laughs) anything like that?
1: I don't know if I have rituals exactly but I think I am you know I'm kind of a creature of habit and I like to have a sort of a structure in place I suppose you know I mean I write writing is is my job and I've always treated it as a job so I I get up um as early you know as I can um without you know realistically and um and then start writing and carry on writing Really, for most of the day, but, but at least until I've written a thousand words. That is my one, I suppose, right. my one slightly kind of ritualistic thing that I aim to write. When I'm writing new material, I mean, a lot of writing for me is rewriting, yes. so that doesn't um, count. But when I'm writing new material, I aim to write at least a thousand words a day, mm. um, which is sometimes very easy, you know, and sometimes I'll write way more than that. Mm. Um, but it's sometimes hard, but even on the hard days, which is probably most days i'll um, i 'll keep sitting there you know until i 've done it because it keeps the book moving forward yeah. um, and also yeah. you know you can start a, a day 's work and it just looks the most unpromising kind of day, and sometimes one even one small idea can emerge you know in those thousand words mm-hmm. so you know nine hundred and fifty of those words might be awful but the, but there might be fifty in there that um that uh, you know have just got something to them, mm. um, so it's that old thing about. I mean, if I sat around waiting for inspiration, you know, to strike, I would probably never write at all. It's for me. It's you have to kind of. Do the work in order to find those moments of inspiration.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, as an author, you have won many awards, and like the list seems to just go on: the Betty Trask Award, the <laughs> Somerset Maugham Award, the CWA Ellis Peters Dagger Award, the Orange, and the shortlisted for the Orange, and the. Oh well, I haven't. The... <laughs> yes, I haven't won the Orange. <laughs> so, but the thing is, when when you you get to a stage where you you've got so many awards, do you feel this? pressure to perform it's like oh my god my next book's got to be shortlisted or it got to win in award, water i feel like i haven't lived up to the rest of the books
1: well yeah i'd be lying if i said i didn't feel that pressure sometimes it's true it's true um and yeah i mean you know most of the time when you're working on a book you're working it's just you and the book and you can i find um that you can kind of shrug off those concerns mm. from you know in your day-to-day writing life um but yes the closer you draw to publication day <laughs> and the closer you draw you know to the reviews coming out and things like that um yeah it is it can feel like a pressure it really can and of course you don't want to you know your publisher has expectations mm. you know uh, your agent i mean my parents have expectations oh, you know God. about what my book is. <laughs> Yeah, so um, you can sometimes feel madly that you know you're letting people down, or you've mm. I don't know. So yeah, there's there's a real mix. It's it's not an unmixed blessing, I think, getting, mm. um, getting awards. I mean, it's always delightful to be you know just, even just to be shortlisted. It's it's always wonderful to get that kind of um, approval and mm. recognition. You know.
0: but um, yeah. it does sound hard, as you say, in you know on some days, and there is that pressure. What's the joy that you get from writing,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, sometimes that joy can feel very far away you know in, I mean in the midst, I think every book probably has periods of um you know of feeling you are feeling stuck I mean so that was certainly true of the night watch, for example, I remember it was just weeks and weeks. Of really feeling like I wasn't getting anywhere and you know I was feeling really really gloomy about the whole process yeah. and I would say every day actually has those moments especially at the start it's all I mean writing for me it's like going to the gym you know it's oh. a horrible start <laughs> but then once you get going you know yeah. you're in the zone and then when you are finish you feel this wonderful glow of satisfaction yeah. but there is always that sort of that, and it's actually, it's a kind of panic for me, it's a kind of panic, you know, about, uh, you know, okay, I've I've pulled it off in the past, but, you know, maybe it's just not going to work this time, you know, maybe the ideas at the heart of this book are completely flawed, that it, it's a dead end. And, you know, all these terrible kind of negative thoughts can just kind of completely overwhelm you. So sorry, I've, to get, a, get back to your question, where's the joy? Yes, where is the joy? Well, I think the joy is <laughs> when you break through those those phases, you know. Um, or just that moment in the day when you do have the one small good idea that you you know is good and mm. you know is helping the book and moving the book forward and bringing the book into focus for you. Mm. Um, and yes, I mean, writing has, you know, highs and lows like nothing else. And the lows are awful, but the mm. highs are the highs of satisfaction and moments that feel like genuine creativity, you know, genuine inspiration, mm. something is almost like re- revealed to you. And it's like, of course, of course, you mm. know. And then the book begins to fall into place. And those those are wonderful moments. Mm. And also, of course, a, a fundamental joy for me is the joy of having finished a book and then it going out into the world. Mm. And, you know, uh, people reading it and enjoying it and people sort of entering into a world that I have created sort of mm. from nothing. You know, I find that, the ple- that, that sort of pleasure of storytelling is just um, wonderful.
0: Mm. And do you get a lot of feedback from fans or readers and, and, and in what way?
1: Yeah, well, I do. I mean, obviously being here um, in Australia at the moment is great because I'm meeting fans, you know, mm. literally on the other side of the world mm. from where I live. So it's um, it's nice to get that kind of face-to-face feedback. But, yeah, I get a lot of um, emails by my website and I get letters um, or I just, you know, sometimes people stop me in the street and <laughs> tell me they like my books. You know, it's it's really great. I love that um, contact. Yeah, I love mm. that.
0: And there's there are some lesbian themes in your books, and and some people categorise you as a lesbian writer. How do you feel about that?
1: Mm. I've never really had a problem with that label. Actually, I think perhaps because I I came into writing via some some academic research. You know, into lesbian and gay writing. Mm. It's always uh, kind of made sense to me that um, y- you know that that label makes sense. I think the label can become a problem if it feels um, kind of restrictive or if if you know it, it puts other people off. I mean, mm. for, you know, as far as I'm concerned, yes, my book there's significant lesbian content in most of my novels, um, but that doesn't mean that um, you know that that those novels are only for lesbians. You know, they're mm. about all sorts of other things too. They're about desire and loss and betrayal and grief i mean just the the things that um kind of pretty universal Mm. sort of um appeal so i think the label makes sense and i you know yes the lesbian content of my books has been important to me you know and i'm perfectly happy to see myself as part of a as a as a a contemporary lesbian and gay writing world or as a sort of longer tradition of lesbian and gay writing. Mm. But, you know, when I sit down at my desk every morning, I don't think, oh, I'm a lesbian <laughs> writer. You know, it's, I'm just at that point, I'm just a writer yeah, sure. like every other writer, just grappling with the text. Mm. Um, hmm.
0: Now, this journey hmm. kind of all started because you did your PhD um, and you, you, mm. you started off in academia, really. Have you been tempted at all to go back to academia and to research some other area um, of, of English literature?
1: Um, no, I haven't. But I think, you know, partly I get, I mean, I've always loved doing research, and but I still get that. You know, mm. I still get the satisfactions of doing research. But what I also get is the liberation of writing fiction mm. rather than writing non-fiction, you know. Mm. Um, and I think for a historical novelist, that's, especially acute that that freedom because of course historians as a historian you're limited to the, the you know the sometimes fragmentary evidence mm. that you have about people's lives and certainly if you're talking about lesbian and gay history you know it really is fragments mm. um and sometimes quite uh, tantalizing or frustrating fragments but of course as a novelist you know your job is to fill in the gaps mm. between those fragments so um i would you know, I'd really miss the freedom of that, um, and also, I mean, more realistically, that you know, the longer I've I've stayed away from the academic world, the kind of less fit I am. I think you know, for um, saying anything kind <laughs> of intelligent about it. So, <laughs> so um, I'm much happy. I'm very happy to be uh, to be a novelist now. Yeah.
0: And um, some of your books have made it to television. Did you ever expect that that was going to happen? And what was it like to actually turn on the TV? and see your characters you know in human form on the screen.
1: Yes. No, well, for one thing no, I never expected anything like that. I mean, God, I mean, I can't tell you how how uh, small my ambitions were for my writing when I started. So it, I certainly didn't ever imagine the books would get get adapted. And when when I was first approached, you know, by a production company who wanted to do, do Tipping the Velvet with Andrew Davis, a scriptwriter who's you know very well-respected mm. uh, British screenwriter? I thought it was a lovely idea, but you know, it, it was never going to happen. And so the fact that I've now had three adapted um, mm. is amazing, and it's been a fascinating process. You know, it's. There was a tipping the valve with my first one was tremendously exciting because it was the first adaptation and also because it was still at a time when TV, um, I mean, TV watching has become a lot more kind of fragmented now. You know, we all mm. kind of watch DVDs or mm. we tape things. Mm. But, I, you know, in 2002, it was st- I think it was still enough of a time when, you know, something was on, t- on BBC Two at nine o'clock and you, you knew that across the country, a lot of people were sitting down to watch it mm. and there'd been a lot of advanced publicity for Tipping the Velvet on TV. And it was a real little TV event in the UK. It mm. was it was really exciting. Mm. Although, of course, I had been, um, you know, I'd seen I'd, my exposure to it. It wasn't like I sat down and turned on the telly along with everybody else. You know, that was mm. my first glimpse of it. All well, I'd seen, well, I'd been on set, you know, and watched bits of the acting and I'd met the cast and I'd seen the rushes. And mm. so uh, it was a gradual exposure to it, really. But, yeah, there were moments that felt like... It was just as I'd imagined it. You know, some of the musical wow. scenes were exactly as I'd imagined them, and that was, that was a little bit spooky, I must admit, mm. yeah.
0: Now, on a practical level, you said that when you started off, after your PhD, you decided to devote a year to, to writing mm. your first novel, which became Tipping the Velvet. So on a practical level, how did you afford that? <laughs>
1: Oh well that's the thing you see I was used to having no money because right. I'd been a student for several years I, I I don't have kids so I didn't have that problem <laughs> I um and more crucially because I'd finished um a period of research I was eligible to claim unemployment benefits right. so um you know I sort of unofficially um was being supported by the state, <laughs> I guess. So, but I mean, the main thing is, I, uh, I I was young enough still, you know, that I could kind of coast along with yeah, that much money. So I know, yeah, yeah. it's a it's a it's a real issue for people. Yeah. You know, if you're going to devote the time you need to devote to writing fiction, yeah. um, you do need to, have to support yourself somehow, yeah. and it is a real issue. Yeah.
0: Well, it was obviously worth it, and it's been freakishly successful, which is great. Now you're, you 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 <laughs> are. Working on, you know, exploring the 1920s, it sounds like, for your next novel. So, but t- mm-hmm. take us, fast forward us, say, 10 years, and can you paint oh, wow. a picture of what you think you'll be doing then? Like how many novels will you have written? One a year? Wow.
1: <laughs> It's really interesting looking forward, you know. Um, I think every writer probably gets to a point where they where they think, you know, they're kind of counting the years ahead of them and knowing how long it takes them to write a book and knowing how much energy it takes to write a book and wondering slightly how many books they've got left inside them. So, I mean, me, I write a book. I mean, the last one took about two and a half years. That was actually quite quick for me. So I would say, you know, within 10 years, I might write three novels at the most but that's assuming that I carry on at the pace you know I've been writing in so far and actually I'm not sure I can or want to sustain that kind of pace Um, and sometimes I even wonder you know well will I just keep writing novels forever you know there was a there was a point as I've talked about when I when I started writing fiction you know I, I made a decision to try and start writing fiction and you know sometimes I think there might come a point when I'll think okay I've written X amount of novels Maybe that's it. You know, maybe I've exhausted the particular creative energies I have for novel writing. Um, I just don't know, to be honest. I don't know. Um, And, of course, things depend on your career and how you're perceived. And that's a bit imponderable. But I would like to think... You know, I'm about to start a new book. I can sort of see the vague outline of, of, of one or two after that. So um, right. that's as far as I really want to look at the moment, yeah.
0: Okay. And finally, for people who are listening, who, you know, um, are in that situation that you were in all those years ago when you were not published and um, where the, it was just an idea to be a novelist, what's your advice to them?
1: Well, I think if anybody has you know, an ambition to write but they're kind of unsure about whether or not to do it, you know, I would say go for it. I mean, that's, you know, it's exactly what I did. I, I had an idea for a novel um, and I, I gave myself, I suppose, I gave myself the opportunity to do it. I think you do have to be, not exactly selfish, but I think you do, I mean, to be a bit kind of new agey about it, you have to give yourself the gift, you know, of mm-hmm. of, of of that. But at the same time, of course, it takes a lot of um, work and it's quite—it's a very lonely life being a writer, mm. especially when you start off. Um, it's very solitary. Um, but I think if you want to do it, you know, do it. You're the only person who can do it. That's the thing. You've got to uh, allow yourself to do it, but you've also got to just kind of get on with it as well, I think. And then maybe worry about agents and publishers, you know, a bit further down the line when you've actually got something.
0: Mm. Yeah. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you very much for your time today, Sarah. Our pleasure. Thank you. ValerieKoo.com. That's ValerieKoo, kho Thank you for listening.